welcome back to the podcast of Wednesday's Child. You're joining us on a sunny Saturday morning and it's Debbie and it's Sarah again. Hi Sarah. Hi Debbie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's good, good. sunny out my window, looks about the same where you are. Oh I know, Middlesbrough's basking in glorious tropical sunshine today. We don't get this often so I'll be out in my bikini later on. All right, that's too much information. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a real special guest on the show with us today. So we are joined today by somebody whose um, social media feed I've followed for a long time. And I mean that in the most positive way because everything he says, I find myself kind of going, yes, hallelujah to that. Amen to that. So we're joined today by Adam Fair. Hi there, Adam. How are you? Hi, Debbie. I'm not too bad, thanks. Yourself? Good. Yeah, all good. Thank you very much. So the reason we kind of reached out to you is because you've got a really interesting story about your background in, in terms of eating disorder, but also you're not afraid to bloody talk about it. I mean, really, we just had a kind of slightly, um, you know, offline chat just now about kind of what you're happy to talk about and not happy to talk about. And you are, you are a seriously open book, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see, I don't see the point in not being about certain things. I mean, you know, there's certain things personally I don't talk about but you know in terms of eating disorders and what we've been through I think the more we share the better because it makes all the people feel like they're not alone yeah absolutely open that conversation and just it starts to take the stigma away a little bit doesn't it so do you want to kind of just briefly tell us in as much as you kind of can in our um, course of our podcast podcast episode what's what's your background with um, your eating disorder and when did you become aware that you'd got an issue yeah so my sort of eating disorder started to develop um, as I transitioned into secondary school. So when I was nearly 12 years old, um, it, it sort of came out of, I say it came out of nowhere, but I sort of also, it didn't come out of nowhere, if that makes sense. So all the way through primary school and before I was a really outwardly confident person, but always in, inwardly quite self-conscious about body image and that sort of thing. Um, and when just before we started in secondary school, I started having some issues with my stomach and bowels and digestive system and that sort of thing, which made me aware of what I was eating, which is the first time I'd ever been aware of what I was eating. Then the transition in secondary school, because I was always seen as the one who would be absolutely fine, no problem. You know, I was quite academically bright and um, quite outwardly confident. I was put in a form away from most of my friendship group, which I think really hit me quite a lot because it was like my comfort zone. And I was taken out of that comfort zone very quickly without any warning really so a bit of a perfect storm then I guess in, in terms of things that were starting to happen at that time yeah exactly that and um it got to the the first weekend I think back at secondary school and you know my mum had made made me made our, our dinner in the evening I'd been out with my dad during the day been playing football during the day I just refused to eat my, my dinner for all that day and that that's the sort of that was the kickoff point if you like of of the eating disorder um, Gosh, isn't that incredible I mean I don't know if that strikes you Sarah but I rarely talk to someone who can label a day you know yeah. a kind of a real point in their in their story but you clearly can yeah it was quite a strange one really I mean like I said I think it was brewing for a bit of time before that but the fact that it was that specific time and that's sort of the time that sticks in the memory if you like um it's quite quite telling really I guess um but it, it was the sort of next few months I went very from being very confident outwardly to very reclusive. So I'd sort of go in chiller, go in on myself, um, get, I lost quite a lot of weight quite quickly. So I always had my coat on and my hood up and got told off at school for doing that. I got told to take my coat off inside and I was sitting there shivering. Um, and then I started sort of trying to get out going to school. So, you know, I'd put on acts, I'd do whatever I could to try and get out of it. Um, because I just couldn't cope with being around other people and, you know, the lunch times and the meal times and that sort of thing. So it, it was a very, very difficult period of time. Um, the school pastoral care was pretty awful, to be honest with you. Um, it took my mum to say, you know, look, well, I say luckily, but also unluckily, my mum had to stop work due to her health about the same time. So it meant that she was at home. So we could, I could come back at lunchtime and have lunch there and we could like have that sort of time together as well which was really helpful but so was there real recognition within your family that this is an eating disorder quite early on it wasn't a this is Adam being awkward this is a bit of a phase your mum clearly was quite on it and I, I asked that because I think we talk all the time don't we about how difficult it is to get you know official treatment routes and all that 
in so many cases, the difference of a parent who gets it or tries to get it is so pivotal. I mean, Sarah, you probably have thoughts on that as an ex-deputy head teacher as well and kind of what you've seen in terms of the families that can hold it together. It's uh, for me the, the experience when I was teaching and also kind of going through the process myself, I think it's, it's as long as you've got someone around you that, that is open to the, the possibility there's, too, there's so much stigma around eating disorders that often as soon as anyone kind of suggests or maybe even hints that that could be, be, that be a reason for any kind of behaviour, that, that it, there's a shutdown because people are frightened of it. Oh, it can't be that thing. It can't be that thing. But I just think even if you don't necessarily understand it, if there is an openness to say, OK, well, this might be a possibility. Let me find out more. Let me approach the subject as I would anything else. Then I do think that's the, that's the absolute key, the absolute openness. Because the one thing that always goes through my mind now and was when I was teaching and, and everything is all behavior is communication. So it doesn't matter what actually that outward facing behavior is. Often when you're talking about a younger and especially teenagers, it's about what actually is that truly trying to communicate to somebody. And if you're open to that idea, then you're going to be open to support and to help someone along the path. So did your mum then kind of play quite, um, quite a sort of pivotal role going forward? Yeah, both my parents uh, did, and my brother. I've got a twin brother. We're not identical, but um, he he was really he's always been really supportive as well right the way through. They've sort of always been by my side. But yeah, literally, I think within maybe within a week of me starting to struggle, my mum took me to the GP. So very quick, you know, she recognised there was a problem, noticed what was happening, not just to me physically, but me emotionally and psychologically as well. Uh, took me to the GP, and the GP. It, was, it wasn't my usual GP because it was an urgent appointment. Um, he just said that, oh, well, you've got an eating disorder, go home and eat more. And that was as far as it went. So it was quite a, you know, it sort of just batted us off really and made us all feel a bit like, well, what, what's, what, what helps that really? You know, you, you, you know you need to eat more, but we need a bit of support with that and a bit of help. But there was no support there. And I think, you know, it was because I wasn't underweight at the time. I, my, you know, my observations were, were okay. So it didn't really matter with about anything else because, you know, it's it still that stigma. I think, I don't know how much being a man had to do with it. Cause I know a lot of women have also had the same problems, but I do believe there's a little bit of stigma there because I don't think anyone really realized it at the time anyway. And it was also difficult at school because my peers didn't understand it as well. Um, so it was sort of a really quite a difficult time and like I said not being able to get that help really did impact me and my family but my mum was my mum was there all the time because she wasn't working my dad was working you know 10 11 hour days but he he was always there as well my brother was always by my side even though he didn't quite understand it at the time because we were we were only 11 years old how can you understand that you know what I mean So how was it treated? You know, you touch on the fact of the kind of gender issue. Clearly, it's going to be a slightly different experience. I mean, we, we all know that more and more boys, men are coming forward and talking about eating disorders in very recent years. But even now, the statistics are kind of very much skewed towards females. And even we have to call ourselves out, don't we, Sarah, even in terms of the kind of pre- um, presentations we do and the collateral we use about not trying to remember that we shouldn't use women's pictures when we do our presentations or whatever all the time because there's still a bias towards the assumption that it's a female illness or whatever but do you recall kind of any distinction around how you were treated that you think was directly relevant to being male and and how peers and others felt about your sort of masculinity in the context of this 100 percent um definitely so not really right at the start but then as I, it, it was really a bit later on that it became an issue because between the age of 12 and 15, I didn't develop physically at all because my, I had no testosterone because my hormones had gone down, but no one knew, no one noticed that. And, you know, it's uh, on a, on a question, on the, the screening questionnaires, there's always a question about women losing the periods. There's nothing about men losing any sort of, um, any sort of, you know, sexual desire or anything like that, um, or not growing for three years. Like I didn't, I went from being the tallest person to being the smallest person. I went from being, you know, the most developed 11 year old to being a 15 year old who looked 10 years old still. 
if that makes sense. So it was, yeah. and still five foot one when I should have been, you know, I've never grown to my full height because of it, but there was never even a question that I didn't have any hormones. There was never even a, a notice of it. Um, but that did cause issues with peers as well, because as, as your peers grow and develop and you don't, it becomes quite a taboo um, and opens yourself up to some bullying, to be honest with you as well. Um, and that did, did happen. Um, especially after I went through a period of abuse when I was sort of from 13 onwards until um, I was about 18. It was a peer who was a youth support worker at a youth club I also volunteered at. And he, nothing ever physically happened, but it was uh, emotional abuse for many years. And um, that really did make me question my masculinity, even though I don't like the word masculinity, it did make me question it made me question my sexuality and everything like that as well. And telling my peers about that meant I was bullied for two or three years consistently about that, which was really difficult and made me question everything about myself. Um, and all the time you're fighting with a, an illness that has this vicious soundtrack going on in your head that says, you're not good enough, that you and people don't like you anyway. Just stay friends and stay in love with this eating disorder. It, so it, yeah. it was kind of obviously continuing to feed the illness. Exactly that, yeah. And, you know, that, that did have a big impact on everything about me. But I think the, the, the hormone issue was a big one and continued to be a big one till I was 20. It came back between the age of sort of 16 and 17 because I got myself physically well enough to play quite high level football again, that sort of thing. So it came back. When you talk about getting well, was that self-driven? So, you yeah, know. completely. There was no, no support, no professional support. It was, um, I just... I started playing football again a lot and loved it. So my nutrition naturally got better as well because I was trying to fuel myself to perform rather than, you know, anything else. That's really interesting, Adam, because we often speak to people who, regardless of how much they're desiring, they want to do something that's kind of more physical and or getting them back to like a, a quote unquote normal life the eating disorder still won't let them so that therefore they end up getting poorlier because they're trying to do these activities that's actually not supporting their recovery. Can you pinpoint or can you think about what was it that helped you or, or made you make that really bold decision to want to do your sport, want to get back on with life, but actually therefore then start ignoring the, the nagging voice of the eating disorder? It's a really hard one. I don't think there's a specific pinpoint I can, I can give, but I'd say that when when recovery from an eating disorder in my view is all about finding your identity um the eating disorder is a is a symptom of a wide of a feeling of for me unsafety you know i'm feeling unsafe and whatever so my safe place was playing football with my mates being on a football pitch doing what i loved and i think because i found that identity and actually i was good at it as well it really drove me and not even consciously drove me, but unconsciously drove me to, to get myself well enough to play at that level. Now that's not to say the eating disorder became a non-issue because it was still there and I was still had very clear food rules and that sort of thing. But I got myself to a point where I was well enough to be happy again and well enough to play football six days a week, you know, and that sort of thing. So it was, there wasn't really a specific time, but it was a more of a process where I came to find who I was, I guess, in that, that sort of that year and a half of time, which was really, really enjoyable, I guess. And, and you said that during that period, you know, physically you started to develop again and, and you know, your hormones are balancing out. It, it sounded to me like you were saying there was a kind of tipping point again later down the line. Yeah. Um, so when I was 17, I was playing our first match of the season. I was the physically the best that I'd been. I'd been had a really good like preseason training for football, and physically I was really really well at that time. Um, and went in for a tackle and broke my foot. I didn't realize it at the time. I carried on playing for a week and a half afterwards with a broken foot. But I think that was more my that was probably my brain saying, look, I don't want to stop exercising and stop being active because I know what's going to happen. Um, and yeah, it did. So again, though, it was a, a specific point in time. So we went out for lunch. I was on crutches because obviously my foot was broken. Um, we went out for lunch and we went to town for lunch. So I went on my crutches into town. Um, and we always we usually sort of like stood there or sat there for a bit eating our lunch before we went back. 
to school for the afternoon. But that day, for some reason, mates just decided to walk off. Um, and obviously, I was on crutch, so I couldn't eat and go on crutch at the same time. So I had to chuck half my lunch in the bin. And that triggered it. Isn't it amazing? It's, um, it's that exact same narrative and that exact same process that regardless of age, sex, anything that we hear all the time about how you said yourself, you said that you were getting physically well, but you still had food rules. So the second that thing that was kind of motivating you or keeping you in that quasi state, as soon as that stopped, the eating disorder was right there. Yeah. So it's that, it's that kind of that age old conversation we have all the time about the illness of the mind being such the driving force to, to break free from. 100%. The moment I lost that identity and also the moment I started restricting food again, even though it was only missing half of my lunch, that little bit of restriction, I think, yeah. is what triggered it. And I think there's more and more evidence about that coming out, about the fact that there's a real link between, you know, you've got ge- people, uh, there's genetic links to eating disorders and biological links, but a, a lot of it, in my view, and I've noticed this as well, is triggered by restriction. So if I go, if I go a day with with eating less, my my thoughts become a lot stronger immediately. And it's I haven't changed anything. I can go back to eating exactly the same the day after, but my thoughts become stronger. And it's the act of that restriction I think that triggers me and probably maybe a lot of other people as well. I, I think you're so right. And I think that the research that they're now doing that into that is really powerful that actually the cognitive function starts to shift the minute you get into a position of restriction and hence the cycle just carries on and gets worse and worse and worse. And then it's harder to unpick it. So yeah, I, I think you're so right. Yeah. And no, it, I, it's, it's the thing to always have on the radar, isn't it as well, Adam and Debbie, it's that kind of, you get to a point where in your recovery where you're well, but then you, it's almost, I think that's maybe something that's always going to have to be something that you consider and that you are mindful of, of and checking in, you know, oh, hang on a minute, where's this happening? Oh, I'm suddenly not having X what I used to. And, and then just making that tiny shift back again so that, so that you're right, nothing is determined by restriction or deprivation. And this yeah. is where one of the things about the, the, the GP relationship we all have is, is so important and so inadequate at the moment is that this conversation the three of us are having here now is only out of lived experience. You try and have a conversation with the GP about that. There will be no data in his little textbook to confirm that this is what's happening and, oh, my goodness, this has relapsed you into your eating disorder. So it, it's such a difficult area what, and that's exactly why we need to kind of make sure that healthcare frontline healthcare professionals do have that level of education and knowledge to to help us spot our signs and look after ourselves yeah 100% I think there's a real lack of well from from what I've seen and experienced there's a real lack of training and experience in GPs about eating disorders and I know I think it's about what like two or three hours they're getting the, the whole training about eating yeah. disorders it's so inadequate and you know, such a wide ranging illness which affects so many people and is so dangerous as well. Should guess it needs a lot more, you know, outreach. But again, it needs more research first. There's a lot of research that's going on, but the, the research is is bitty at best, I guess, isn't it? I'm sure you've noticed that. Yeah, absolutely. It's being it's being carried out by lots and lots of separate pockets of organisations. This we we talk about this all the time, don't we, Sarah? About kind of, you know, collaboration is key to solving this, and that's kind of that's true of the research bit, the education bit, all of us influencers that want to kind of have a voice about it. It's all kind of the louder the voices, the more collective the voices, the more we can try and influence some change. You know, I, I took some small crumb of comfort about the Instagram story this week that, you know they did actually quite quickly um, put the apology out and ad- admit that it was, you know, an algorithm mistake and correct it. But part of that was born and well, and not for the small part was born about because so many of us noticed our platforms were suddenly seeing all this really incredibly unhelpful content. And we spoke up and collectively that voice created is it Facebook? Oh, it's Instagram, Instagram, you know, Facebook, I guess, kind of made that decision. And then it made major news. And I was kind of pleased to see that because it does remind us that when we come together and make sure our voice is known, maybe in some small way, some changes will happen. Yeah. Um, you know, the other platforms need to do it next. Though, I think it's, it's a, I, you know, we, we talk about it all the time on, on Twitter as well. We, we, we post about eating disorders, about, you know, how we, we feel that restricted dieting is dangerous and that sort of thing. And lo and behold, you get adverts for it on your feed. Yeah. And, you know, I personally think it's 
not good for anyone having that smacked in your face all the time. But I think it's disgusting. I think mean, especially you, people are struggling. Absolutely. Sarah, you and I were sort of saying about on our feeds so, you know, just after Christmas. I think, you know, was it nearly a dozen different diets that were advertised, that, you know? It's that fasting app. There's a fasting app that it's just everywhere. And oh yeah. It, and that that that's that thing, you know, whatever whatever I post, whatever I put within an hour or so, bang, it's the same thing. It's like I don't don't go away. <laughs> but yeah. it's like kind of and, and when you're on about collaboration and research, you're dead right. It's so important. But no one's knocking on our door. You know, no one, no one said, oh, hang on. There's a 42-year-old woman in Middlesbrough that talks quite a lot about eating disorders. Tell you what, maybe we should ask her. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, it's, and I just think that if, we were, if whoever was brave enough to just get us around the table and have some real frank and proper conversations about this, you know, no bullshit, no holds barred, and then we can start to maybe... I always wonder whether that some of that is fear then because so many of us that would sit around that table we would just not hold back we would tell them what it's like and and actually there's a part of me that thinks you know if you're in that area of the country where the postcode lottery around getting eating disorder support and I say postcode lottery because I'm sure that you know there must be parts of the UK who are incredibly good and have done yeah we have heard from people who've said I've been just so grateful. My GP has been phenomenal. And that might be because that GP experienced an eating disorder themselves or had somebody in the family. So they just get it and they're really on it. But to be honest, the picture we see is that is in the absolute minority. And every one of us really should be kind of calling out and going back to our NHS Foundation Trust and saying, guys, you need to kind of listen to me and you need to understand because lived experience helps inform how your future services can run. And without it, we know we're in a shitstorm around around eating disorders. We were before COVID. So yeah. God help us beyond it. Yeah, I've I've um I've actually been lucky enough to be asked to be on sort of the lived experience panel of the Sussex Partnership Trust. I don't live in Sussex, but they've asked me to be part of it because they can do virtual. They're doing really, really amazing things and they're having they've got pools of lived experience people who actually are the ones who shape the research that they do. Um, which I think is amazing, but it's so like you said, it's a postcard lottery. I've I've lived in four well, I've lived in three at different areas. I've lived in Cumbria, I've lived in Birmingham, and now I'm in Milton Keynes. And I've also been under the care of people in, in Manchester as well, in two different trusts in Manchester. And everywhere I've been, they've just had no knowledge of eating disorders. There's been no support. And if your BMI don't hit a certain threshold, you're just ignored. Um and that that's been the case right the way through. The the you know it's it's ridiculous and how they they just they base a, a psychological condition only on physical factors because i get why they do it and they do it because they've only got so much funding and they've got to allocate it to the certain people but even the bmi criteria is getting lower and lower because there's too many people and you know if 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 i was struggling now like i was when i was 18 when i had to get hospitalized my i wouldn't have got the help i needed because my bmi would still have been too high um, and I'd only just hit the threshold then and I had, um, you know, my kidneys and heart were failing. So it's, it's just, it's mad. And sorry to change subjects, but I think going back to being a man, I think that's another part of it. And I truly believe this, that, and I've, I've seen this with other people as well, that, and I hate seeing pictures of people so well, and I hate seeing how low weight some people get, but, I've been very, very unwell at a BMI or weight that would not be seen as dangerous. And I personally think that men and women are different in that stage. Um, you know, men naturally are heavier builds. They've got more muscle. They've got hormones that give you more muscle. I mean, you can retain that muscle more easily. And I found that, you know, I have testosterone therapy and stuff now, but I can hold on to as soon as I stop that therapy, my muscle disappears straight away. And that's not a, that's not because I've done anything different. That's a biological fact. So I think there needs to be a lot more research into that side of things with men and how they, they can perhaps become seriously unwell when they look physically okay. And I know everyone can. I know everyone at any size can become physically un, seriously unwell. But, you know, I know how much you know, my what my behaviours were when I was 18. I should have been, I should have looked a lot different to what I did, let's put it that way. 
um, without going into details. Do you look back with a level of grief about what your life has lost as a man um, during that period of being so, you know, very poorly? And you talk about obviously the the kind of um, hormone treatment and stuff that kind of you use now. Um, is all of that linked? And, and is there some deep sort of inherent sorrow that you you struggle to shift now? Um, definitely is. Um... I don't know if it's about being a man or just about the the, the sort of childhood that you or the teenage years that you lost. Um, the side about being a man's diff, diff, I guess different but difficult in a way as well because I have no confidence in in myself about that side of things. That you know I'll be able to get into a lasting relationship. You know, and we all talk about sexual relationships being a big part of a relationship and a big part. Of, but I've never been in one of those, and I don't even know if I will be. Um, I mean that's probably that's a personal issue but it also does def- does affect me a bit also knowing knowing that um, because I had all of those years where I did struggle so much that I've never developed fully as a man um, that does become really difficult as well because I'm not you know I'm not fully developed as a, as a man and I never will be now that's hard to take that's really hard to sort of try and work your way through I guess emotionally and I know life and love and that sort of thing are about more than that right but it does really affect you um, at the same time and also knowing that the, the testosterone treatment I have to have affects my fertility as well um, so like at the moment I've had to come off that therapy to try and see if my body will naturally work again and if it doesn't, then we have to look at other ways of, if I do wish to have a family in the future, to work that out. Um, but there's no guarantee it'll, have, it'll work. And it's a lot of sort of things which make make it really hard. And I don't think it's, I don't think, like I said, I think women have the same or similar issues in a different way. But I think being a being a man in a in a male world, it's like very can be very orientated around maybe the wrong thing sometimes but you're still part of it yourself it, it can be quite difficult to to work through and to try and rationalize I guess at the same time but do you also think Adam maybe that would it be fair to say that possibly in this community in this eating disorder affected community there are inevitably more women so women have those conversations about what their losses are and what they have missed out on. So there's there's some comfort in a mutual understanding. I can never remember in all my ever looking into kind of eating disorders chat on social media ever once hearing a guy talk in the depth about the impact on hormones the way you do. I can't, I don't see that. Whereas I know as myself, I missed my chance to have children because of my eating disorder. Without doubt, it's, um, you know, Sarah knows it can bring me to tears all the time. Um, Very, very, I try not to be bitter, but I mean, desperately unhappy and upset about it. But you know what? I could probably very easily pick up the phone to email a a female person who has been through exactly what I have or feels the same. Guys don't talk in the same way or don't, they certainly don't seem to come forward to the level that you do about what the impact has been on you yeah and I guess in a way that's where you could spin the negative into a positive and I know that sounds really strange sometimes but and I think my the, the only positive and it's really hard to say there's been a positive come out of my insider right because it's been horrible for me and my family and that's that's something that can't be denied but I do think that the only the only positive side of it is that it's it's made me a a kinder person. It's made me more empathetic. You know, I, I would have been probably quite a quite an arrogant person if I hadn't struggled like I did. Um, but it, it's made me close to my family. But it's also made me realise that speaking out isn't a problem. And it's not it's not a weakness to be vulnerable. Um, it's actually okay. And if you know, if me talking so openly can help someone else talk so openly and then they can help someone else talk so openly it can start a snowball effect which can really help a lot of people I guess and you know I'm not the the, the reason I campaign and talk about things isn't isn't 
for my own satisfaction. It's not, I don't do it to get likes and to get followers. And it's not about that. It's about, it's about raising awareness of an issue that affects so many people and so many families. Um, and that's the main thing for me, I guess. How have you found um, lockdown in particular? How, how has this year been for you? It's, it was, at the start, it was good. Because at the start, I thought, right, I've got a couple of months. I can really work on myself here. Um, and then it just dragged on and on and on and on. And um, I live alone for, you know, I've had to move for work a couple of times, live alone. I've moved during lockdown as well. So it's been quite, there's been times where it's been good and times where it's been really difficult. There's been, there was a time last summer where I was nearly very unwell again, physically, because uh, my, my exercise had become sort of out of control again. So nutritionally, I was okay, but exercise-wise, I was out of control. I was a normal weight. So no one would bother about me. I'd just been declined eating disorder treatment in Milk Keynes because my weight wasn't low enough. Um, I think that really did hit me. So I became quite unwell there. But luckily, um, it was sort of during the summer. So my parents could come and visit because we could start bubbling. So the parents came down for a week and that sort of reset me. I think if they hadn't come down, I would have been quite severely unwell again. Oh, God, Adam, so, every time you mention your parents, I feel like I want to put my arms around No, they're, they're, no they're brill- honestly, they're brilliant. They're, them and my brother, they, they've been the ones that have kept me alive. Yeah. And I'll, I say, I, I'll say that so openly. They've, been, they've kept me alive. I don't just want to put my arms around my, your parents, Adam. I want to put my arms around you. <laughs> your class. And, and when you said, you know, nothing's good to come out of my eating disorder, I think you have come out of, or your, your, your recovery is what is good about this eating disorder because your, like you said, your empathy and sympathy and eloquence and it's just, it's, it, it needs to be praised. And you, 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 you are, should be so proud of everything that you do for you firstly, but then for the community. Um, and sat listening to you so openly. I, I just, I, I've been really quiet because I've been engrossed. I'm normally the chatterbox, Adam, and Debbie tells me off. But I'm just, you're just fascinating. And, and, and thank you. Just thank you on behalf of everyone that's listening. I, th- I think the other thing, I mean, you know, you kind of said it slightly glibly that you don't do this for likes and followers on social media. But I think, you know, we've both talked in the past about there are people that use the social media platforms that we sometimes look at and think, okay, is this more about celebrityism speak out for the sake of it or is this born out of some true empathy understanding and desire to help one another and, and I think that shines through with you Adam it really does oh, thank you both I really appreciate that it's it's I, I would say though that the community we've got on social media and is one of the positives of social media um it gets a lot of negative press about the advertising about people being trolling and you know abusing others and that sort of thing but I think there's a really nice community in there as well who are genuinely looking after and looking out for each other. And that is really, really nice to see that there's people that the only thing we share is that we've all struggled the same way or similar ways. We've all struggled to find help when we need it. And we're all struggling to try and find our way in life. And it's really nice that we can be so supportive to each other, I guess as well. Um, And there are a couple of men on that as well. Um, But one thing that, I really want to raise and I bang on about this all the time and especially a lot more recently is that there's way too many people with anorexia and not enough people with other eating disorders who are vocal and I think that's causing a stigma and the media are part of that problem as well there's a sort of an acceptable media eating disorder sufferer who they're starting to get men a bit more now but they're still focusing on on anorexia too much and we know anorexia is less than 10 percent of people who struck who have eating disorders it's 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 perpetuating a stigma that eating disorders are just about low weight not eating food and it's and also as we were talking just before we started about this about you know where's the where's the diversity of of um ethnicities and and race as well um and i know that's because people don't talk out but if we don't empower them to talk out they're not going to if we don't make it a safe, we need to make it a safe place for people to talk, to talk about it openly. I think that's really important that we do that, that the media do that, that research involves those sort of people as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's a holistic, you know, task about that we all share, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, we've all got that responsibility, haven't we, to kind of try and look outside of ourselves and say, how does this affect a another community? How does that person feel about this? What is a true reflection of somebody that's got an eating disorder? And I find myself, you know, really frustrated. So I'm a former journalist, and yet, you know, when it comes to us kind of putting stuff out to the media about eating disorders, you know, even I think we put something out in Eating Disorders Awareness Week, didn't we, Sarah? And straight away the journalist was, has she got the before and after pictures? What we want is some pictures of her looking. Really Really, you know re what you mean is you just want bones popping out all over the place and that's the only way you can tell whether that person had a bad enough order to shock your readers in the news I wrote back to the journalist and said no I, I'm sorry that's that's not how we portray eating disorders you can't tell whether that person was poorly or not poorly just by seeing a before and after picture and you know those are the kind of media lessons that I'm, I'm almost shocked that we're still having to explain it to them but it, sadly we really are and a more recovery focused narrative would be really positive and really helpful for me and for many people you know often and too often eating disorders regardless of what the diagnosis or the title is it's about asking people their story their journey where's it been where's it started but actually it needs to be more about okay, but how do you recover? I mean, there's been some things in, in the press and recently about people stating that you can't recover. Well, you can recover from an eating disorder. It's bloody hard work, but you can do it. And, but too often, I think people want, they want the backstory because that's, that's the, you know, that's the bit that's going to get, like you said, the, the pictures and the bones and what have you. But um, just as long as our community stays really recovery focused. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, this, we need more voices of people who have who have recovered as well and people who have been through it and know what recovery is like and those positive stories and again that's a big thing it's not just about people who are struggling now it's about people who struggled in the past and how they've come through it because that gives hope to others that they can recover and but we know recovery rates are ridiculously low with eating disorders but that's a, that's a problem of treatment and funding and resourcing and treatment not being individualized to the person and a whole host of things but it doesn't make it impossible and but also that i think it's really important that it's it's sort of that recovery is different for everyone you know some people recovery is complete and utter thoughts you know disordered thoughts no more for other people it's, it's management of those thoughts and but the everyone should be encouraged to try and find a quality of life that they can, they can live with, I guess, and that is, they can manage and that is, that keeps them physically and emotionally well. You're so right. And I, I think actually, you know, you hit on the word that I think is the magic in, in this, which is hope. And, and actually how important it is that people feel able to continue to have hope because that is a key part of the jigsaw of recovery. Just like you were talking about, your football became a purpose. It was something that validated you, gave you an identity outside of your eating disorder. So we all need to have some sense of the hope of a brighter future. And, and that is in no small part in recovery. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, and I've said this when I've talked to people in, past, in the past, stop focusing on the food so much. Yeah. And it sounds really counterintuitive that, but yes, eating disorders are about food, but they're also not about food at all. And it's, 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 it's a symptom of a wider issue. And I've, I mean, this is, this is only personally, but there may be other people who are similar, but there may be people completely different. But for me, I think, and I've experienced it in the past, so I know for me, if I find my identity, the food becomes less of an issue. It doesn't go and don't disappear. And I always need support in helping that last bit work itself out. But finding that identity will then, it fills your life with more than food. Yeah. And somehow everything else feels slightly a little bit easier to, to kind of achieve and to keep going and, and to... I don't know, to deal with the fact that recovery isn't linear and so to cope with the ups and the downs along the way. Yeah, definitely. From a, from a guy's perspective, Adam, what would you say, if, if, you, if you can sort of crunch it down into some short tips and words and um, sentences, if parents or colleagues are worried about a guy and they've got kind of an inkling that there might be an issue going on are there certain things that you can do better to support in particular a guy going through an eating disorder? And also, are there things that 
are the kind of things that we should be picking up in a, in a male that's struggling with an eating disorder that perhaps you wouldn't see with a female going through it? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, that, because I think in terms of encouraging someone to talk about it, it's about making them feel safe, and men are really bad at doing that. You know, I, I work in... I work in the construction industry and men talking about emotions is just, yeah, um, it's difficult. I, I work as a, so I'm part of my, my job, sort of volunteer part of my job is, is a wellbeing sort of lead. And it, it's like, it's like trying to bash through a brick wall with a feather. <laughs> it's so difficult, but. Great construction based analogy there. I like that. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, it's it's about making people feel safe that it's okay to talk about it i think is a start because if if we make people feel safe then they will start talking as well um but in terms of in terms of the signs what to pick up there's there are some things that i mean maybe differ a little bit i mean a lot of men will mask it by becoming fitness fanatics and that sort of thing i know that happens with some women as well but you know, you go down to a lot of gyms and you see how focused men are on body image and food and counting and tracking everything they eat and do. That's that's not, in my opinion, a, a healthy or a sustainable way of living. You know, if, if they miss a gym session, it's like the world's ended. And, you know, that's not really life. It's, it's So it's, it's about things like that and about think people starting to miss social events because they've got to go and work out or train or they can't go out because they can't eat that food or, you know, they don't know what's in it or, you know, little things like that. And I guess people become very good at masking it. So it is really about spotting those, those minutiae um, rather than there's, there's no bigger picture because you won't notice the bigger picture. It's always, it's, the, it's always the little signs because uh, some, someone said something the other day. It was really, really good. It's people don't fake being unwell. They fake being well. Um, I think that's what we need to pick up on and get to know people better as well because then you can notice when they are faking it I think it's really important to be highly tuned on that because often the person who is unwell doesn't know they're unwell Mm. so therefore actually knowing and and being able to spot and support and and see things especially when you're talking about you know from a school's perspective because that person will just think that they're living a certain life that they've chosen potentially i'm not saying everybody but that they've maybe chosen this particular lifestyle they're seeing it from a fitness and a health kind of lifestyle that's 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 manifested into something really really destructive but you often don't know that you're pooling and it takes being dragged kicking and screaming. I know I was dragged kicking and literally kicking and screaming. They took my car keys off me, my laptop, and I was dragged into hospital um, because I had no idea. So again, if we've, it goes right back to the beginning, doesn't it? If we've got people who are willing to be open enough to see and to spot and then to go, right, hang on, I think I might have an idea of, of what we could do here because that person never potentially not going to ask for it themselves, especially when you're young. This, this is why we, we always talk about education being really important. And, you know, we've talked um, throughout this already about um, healthcare professionals needing to have sort of better understanding and, and comprehension so that they can help spot signs when people walk into the GP's room. But what about those that don't? It's the everyday people. It's your work colleagues. And I think I've probably said to you before, Sarah, that, you know, I approached an organisation that's a 500 employee organisation and said, you know, really would like to do a free webinar for your colleagues about kind of obviously... I don't think this mental health course that you've done touches enough on eating disorders. Can I just give you a bit more understanding about eating disorders? And, you know, the guy just said to me, oh, do you know what? I've got 500 staff, but I can guarantee you we haven't got a single person here with an eating disorder. And it was so dismissive of me. And then I, I sort of said, well, I'll tell you what, even if you're right, but you're not. I'll tell you, even if you were right, amongst those 500 people will be a parent or somebody who knows somebody at home who is on the cusp of needing to be hospitalized with a life-limiting eating disorder you need to understand what an eating disorder looks like 
But I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a director of a company, Debbie, and I think if any CEO or director turns around and says, oh, we don't have that here, it's because they don't want to acknowledge yeah. that they've got that here. That's their fear of the fact that they, they, they could potentially have people that are, are going to divert away from their actual business path. Um, you know, the, the company I'm a director for, we are the most up-to-date with all things eating disorder because as soon as there's anything to do, you know, mental health awareness week, right, come on, let's get, well, let's do this properly. Um but it's that fear again, isn't it? With this illness, it's it's that oh, best I can't I can't can't go there because that's eating disorders and that that's too scary. But we don't do the same with other potentially habitual addictive disorders, and we don't do the same with other really difficult kind of conversations. That that side of the things and in, in, in terms of mental health treatment, I think is getting more open and better and structured and 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 exactly what it needs to be. But there's still something about this illness that that just puts people's blinkers up and shut us down 100 percent. and the this the scary bit about that you know saying there's not no one with an eating disorder you know that the the latest the 2019 nhs um health survey showed that up to 16 percent of people would screen positive for a potential eating disorder it, it's not just like it's not just a and and I think it was four or five percent of those had significant would say it had significant impact on their life. So you know, out of those five hundred people, what was that? At least twenty, twenty-five people. Yeah, I thought. Um, I think it was Agnes Aiton, wasn't it, that yeah. sort of mentioned this week about some more updated figures. And I, I was kind of really pleased to to see that we're talking about different figures. That one point two five million figure that was around, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, maybe more than that, is still being being used. And I think sometimes maybe the media look at that and go, oh, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a huge amount of people. Well, that's because a that figure is massively outdated, and also the stigma and shame associated with this bloody illness means that we we're never recording the true figures. Because too many people are afraid to come forward. Oh, and another lot of people are going to their GP saying, I think I'm suffering from an eating disorder and being told, no, you're not, love, because your BMI is not low. Yeah, yeah. exactly okay. that. And I, then on a waiting list for, you know, what was it, three years we were talking to someone yeah. the other week? Yeah, or oh, not at all. Yeah. Um, no, since, since, I've, since I've started talking to people at work, I'd say at least one in every five or six people I've talked to, I'd say has a problem with eating food. And that's the thing, isn't it? It doesn't need to be a diagnosed eating disorder for to for it to be disordered eating enough that's preventing you from living the life that you know you could be living, or preventing you from experiencing and exploring things that you know you want to be experiencing and exploring. So you don't need to have a label. Some people, for me, it was having that label was actually really important because it almost gave me permission to get well. But it's also really looking at what we're doing as a culture and as a society to get away from this disordered eating rhetoric as well. Yeah. You know, our bodies, they're not designed to be manipulated. They're not designed to be micromanaged. They will take care of themselves if we just let them be, but we don't. We have to scrutinize and, and, and nail everything down to the absolute tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. And that's, that's disordered. It's, 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 it's not helping our bodies be what they want to be. We, we've we've over-medicalized food, is my opinion. We've over... We, we've for some conditions I get it, but there's so much scientific stuff behind food and nutrition now. I think it's done more harm than good. Yeah. Food, food is, you know, food is, is not a number. It's not guilt. It's not shame. It's, it's enjoyment. It's taste. It's socializing. It's life. It's emotional regulation. Sometimes it's, it's, it's everything that isn't body image, you know, and, numbers and calories and god knows what else people try to put moral value on it now and that's i think that's the thing is it moral value that's a really important phrase there because you know that there is scientific evidence behind different foods doing different things but it's that moral food should not give you more virtue than someone else just because you eat kumquats does not make you a more virtuous person than someone that eats pizza you know no your morals do that your values do that the way in which you live the food that you eat does not make you a better person 100 percent. well adam it's been fascinating talking to you this morning <laughs> i'd like to end on a kind of you know on a positive and and just help our listeners understand kind of where you are today in terms of your general health but also your aspirations and and kind of thoughts you've got in terms of the immediate and longer term future yeah, so, you know, physically now I'm in a stable place, which is really positive. You know, emotionally I still do 
had my ups and downs quite a lot, but I, I've just joined a football team club again, so I'm getting back into that hopefully. And Amazing. Um, I'm quite sort of, I'm in a, a more stable place. I've got a full-time job that I'm, I'm working. Yeah, I've been doing that for the last three years, having never thought I'd be able to hold down a job. So uh, I've been able to move to a flat in Milton Keynes, uh, away from my family and still live independently and, and manage, you know, okay. So, you know, despite not having any sort of formal support, still managed to get myself to a sort of stable place, which is quite, quite good really. Um, but, you know, longer term for me, I, I, I want to try and get some support and some help to, to sort of manage those emotions and, and get to a, a recovery that is, is my recovery, I guess. But I also think we've really got hope in the eating disorder space that they are now getting a bit more exposure, that there's more pressure being put on to those at the top to fund eating disorders properly. So everyone who has any issue with food, body image, weight, um, or their exercise or anything like that that affects their quality of life can can get the support they need and deserve. And I, I really do believe we are making some traction there. And I really do hope that that it's listened to and that our voices are heard. And that collective voice is really, really strong. And I think it's only getting stronger. So, you know, if there's any positive to end on, I think that it's that there's a lot of amazing people doing amazing, amazing work out there that will hopefully make a big difference. Amazing. And on that note, that's incredibly positive. And I feel a little bit emotional. <laughs> Need to go and do something kind of completely away from thinking. <laughs> it's been amazing, Adam. It's been really great to have a chat with you. And I'm just so, so thankful. I have no doubt that we're going to get loads of questions after this. So I suspect we'll probably be asking you to come yeah, back. We'll be a bit busy. We'll do, no a, we'll do a Q&A with Adam Fair. I mean, actually, do you know what? I, nothing would give me greater pleasure if we got enough guys come forward and say, actually, do you know what? I listened to that with Adam. I want to know this, that and the other. And if we did a session just for the guys to come forward and have a conversation or parents of guys or partners of guys as well, that must be tough. So, yeah. So, yeah, if you're listening to this and it feels like you want to ask Dr. Adam, you can ask Dr. Adam for us. <laughs> Okay, that wraps up this latest episode of the Wednesday's Child Podcast. Have a great week ahead and we will see you all again soon. Take care, everyone.